Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by restaurateur Danny Meyer of the Union Square Hospitality Group. This lecture, The Power of Hospitality, is part of the 2011 Frankie Lecture Series. I want to just uh, share a little bit about what we've learned in all the 25 and a half years that I've been in the restaurant business, going back, uh, as Professor Friedman said, to 1985 with the opening of Union Square Cafe, um, and then making that the only restaurant I owned really for the first decade until uh, I finally got convinced to do a second restaurant. I went kicking and screaming into doing my second restaurant because I was quite sure that, that uh, the act of opening a second restaurant would be a surefire way to ruin the success of the first one, and certainly the second one wouldn't be any good, and third, I'd probably ruin my own life because I was already not finding enough hours in the day. But uh, there were 10 years between one and two. Then three and a half years later, I opened two restaurants together. So after Gramercy Tavern, there became 11 Madison Park and Tabla. And then um, about four years after that, Blue Smoke, and then Shake Shack, and then the Modern, and then we got into the business of serving food at uh, City Field, where the Mets play. And then we opened a catering business um, called Union Square Events. And then we opened a Roman restaurant called Maialino. And then we opened a learning company called Hospitality Quotient to teach companies, whether they're restaurants or not, who are already the best in the world at what they do, how to be the best in the world at how they make people feel, the experience that Professor Friedman was talking about. And uh, meanwhile, Shake Shack started to grow. It was the first restaurant we ever did where we did a second version of the first. And now, uh, to make matters even worse or better, depending on how you look at it, we'll be opening uh, another four Shake Shacks this year, a second Blue Smoke this year, and another new restaurant uh, called the North End Grill down in Battery Park City. So what I want to tell you is that I've seen a whole lot of different things in this business. I've come a long way from the days where in order to be taken seriously as a fine dining restaurateur, you really had one and no more than one restaurant. In fact, preferably you lived upstairs or next door to it, and you never opened your doors without being there. And over the course of these years, I've learned an enormous number of lessons. But I'm going to tell you right now what I think the, the biggest family of lessons has been, which I, I think has everything to do with the restaurant business and even more to do with life in general. And that is uh, something that occurred to me about 15 years ago for the first time. It was really my big aha moment. And it was the day that the Zagat survey came out. It comes out, it used to come out every year right around Thanksgiving. And I'm sure you can imagine what has happened over the previous 10 years is it started to come out a week earlier every year until right now, it almost comes out the last week in September. And the reason is they want to have as many selling days before Christmas as possible. So any of us who are students of the Zagat survey in New York know that it's the only, uh, and this goes back way before the internet. You know, Zagat's been doing this since the early 1980s when it was the first democratic survey as opposed to, you know, a restaurant critic coming in every five years or so. It was the only time way before the internet where real diners could have an opportunity to weigh in in a way that their voice would have some measure of impact on how the world would, would feel about restaurants. And it was like getting an annual report card. And we would, as, as we still do, we would just 
count the, the minutes until the Zagat survey came out to find out whether the three things Zagat would ask about, food, decor, and service, whether the dining public, and there would be thousands and thousands of New Yorkers voting in this, whether the dining public thought that our food had gotten a little better or a little worse that year, our decor had improved a little or not, and our service had gotten a little bit better. And so those were the three big questions that Zagat asks about, FDS, food decor service. But the other thing that they would ask, there, there was a fourth question, they would say, now name your five favorite restaurants in New York. And in the aggregate, the restaurants that got the most votes would end up on this list called New Yorkers favorite restaurants. And so going back about 15 years ago or so, when the Zagat survey came out, it was about uh, a year and a half after Gramercy Tavern had opened. I opened the Zagat survey and I was thrilled to see that, uh, that Union Square Cafe was that year number three in the Zagat survey. And we had had a long, you know, there's 26,000 restaurants in the city. The first year we had made that New York's favorite list, we were 21. And then the next year we were uh, 17, then 15, 13, 10, 7, 5. We were finally three. And that very same year, Zagat named Gramercy Tavern, our new restaurant, number 10. And it was a big deal. And literally, I stayed excited for about 10 minutes. Because the very next thing I saw, I turned the page. And uh, I noticed that in the list of New Yorkers' version of the best food, Union Square Cafe that year had come in number 12. Gramercy Tavern had come in number 14. In the category of service, Union Square Cafe had come in number 11, Gramercy Tavern number 20. And in, in the list of decor, Gramercy Tavern had come in number 18. Not bad for a first year. Union Square Cafe wasn't even on the list of the top 50. It, was, it turned out it was 65th. And I went to myself, we've got a problem here. How can you be number three as New York's favorite restaurant when your food is, is 11, your service is 12, your decor is 65. Now, you don't have to be a math major to know, but you know, 11 plus 12 plus 65 divided by 3 does not equal 3. And, and it was the exact same kind of math for Gramercy Tavern. How could that come out number 10? And I started to notice this exact same pattern the next year. And then several years later, when 11 Madison Park and Tabla um, made the list. And what hit me loud and clear and this was really the secret of our sauce, and it, it remains that to this day, and it's what, if you're gonna work in our company, if you don't understand this, you're just not gonna enjoy yourself whatsoever, is that there is something that Zagat has forgotten to ask people about. The fact that our restaurants year after year can be greater than the sum of their parts in the category of New York's favorite restaurants means that there's one of the parts that Zagat didn't ask about that we must be scoring off the charts on. And we finally figured out that that was hospitality, that Zagat should really be asking people F-D-S-H, food, decor, service, and hospitality. And before I lose you here, I need to get back to something that Professor Friedman said earlier, which, is, which was really our big aha moment. And that was understanding the incredibly different meaning of service and hospitality. Now, I had grown up my whole life in St. Louis, um, which is known for you know, friendly people, um, hearing that if you really wanted to succeed in business, 
you better have great service. And, and we had heard, you know, the, the word service drummed into our heads as kids all along. We'd go out to eat, and we'd go out to the zoo, or we'd go to a baseball game, and we'd always hear, oh, that place has great service. See, that's the service. But it didn't begin to tell the story. So I started to analyze all this to try to figure out what this all meant. And the first thing I did was to ask myself, what difference does it mean if you are favorite? What, is, what does it mean when it says this is a New Yorker's favorite restaurant? The first thing I answered was it doesn't mean you're the best. There's nothing about being favorite that says the best. That's reserved for the ones that are number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten for food or decor or service. Those are objectively the restaurants whose component parts people say are the best. So I started to ask myself, how important is it to be someone's favorite? And I remembered another story from growing up when in fifth grade, I did not win the class presidency. I came in second. And I got a big lecture from my mom when I came home that night. And I was all dejected. And I said, you know, Joe Frost, the guy that won the presidency of the class, was giving everybody candy. And she said, that was really smart, wasn't it? It worked. And, um, and she said, but, but by the way, that's just a popularity competition. Who cares about being someone's favorite classmate? You need to be the best. So I got her voice here, and I've got the, you got to have the service thing going on right here. And the next thing I said to myself was, wait a second, you're your own guy now. That's why you moved out of the house. What, a, what matters to you? And I started thinking about what it means when I say something is my favorite, or if I say someone is my favorite. If I were to say that that is my favorite professor, or if I were to say this is my favorite university, or if I were to say this is my favorite watch, or I could say that New Haven is my favorite place for pizza, all right, you cannot argue with me because I said my favorite. Okay, so it's obviously it's a purely subjective statement, and I'm personalizing it. But at the end of the day, I will tell you, if someone says my favorite in front of you, you're my favorite cousin, you're my favorite aunt, that's my favorite city, this is my favorite airline, that's my favorite restaurant, if, they, if, if somebody puts the words my favorite in front of, of anything, it is the highest compliment they can pay it. They said it was their favorite. So number one, I want to go for that prize every year. Because as a business that relies upon consumers, that relies upon people wanting to work for us, and I can tell you whenever we talk to someone from out of town who's moved to New York, uh, who's applied to our restaurant, and I say, how'd you hear about us? Invariably, they say, well, I think I'm really good, and I went shopping in the Zagat survey, and I looked right at that list. Why wouldn't someone want to work at New York's favorite restaurant? So I started thinking about, well, what does it take to get there? And what are we doing? What is hospitality? How does it relate to being the best at what you do? And what is this equation? And if I could only solve it, how could I replicate and how could I make sure we keep doing it? Because when someone says you're their favorite, it is going to translate into commercial success, almost invariably. And the first thing I realized was I needed, I needed to come up with an equation that I could teach. And the equation that I came up with that works is that I want to get a 100 on my test, just like any student would want in anything they do. 
And I spoke about this in the class uh, a little bit earlier today, but we ascribed 49, the maximum number of points that we would get for how good we were at what we did, okay, i.e. performance, how well did we perform, was 49. And that left 51 points that we would give for how well we made people feel during our performance. All right, now, let me, let me walk back into time for just a minute. In the old days, like when I was growing up, and before the internet, we'll call it BI, okay? Before the internet, when we did not have instant information on every single thing in the world. In the old days, when people would come up to me in the Union Square Green Market, and invariably they would say, oh, Danny, I just want to tell you, Union Square Cafe is my favorite restaurant. I would, of course, say thank you to them. And the next thing I would do, is, which I would still do today, is I would say, tell me why, because I want to make sure we keep doing it. And in the old days, people would almost always give me a reason that was connected to performance. They would talk about, well, you're my favorite restaurant because no one makes roast chicken as well as you do. Or you're my favorite restaurant because you're the only restaurant that actually seats us on time when we make an 8 o'clock reservation. The rest of them make us wait. Things that had to do with, did we do our job the right way? Did we do the things we were supposed to do? Or you're the only restaurant that actually gets the right food to the right person without auctioning off who gets the chicken. They were talking about you know, performance things. Or your waiters know the difference between Sancerre and Pouille Fume, and the other restaurant doesn't. Today, I can tell you in the 2011 Zagat survey, all of, every single one of our restaurants, even Shake Shack, which is not even really a restaurant, is in the top 50 of New York's favorite restaurants, and uh, three of the top five restaurants are ours in all of New York City when it comes to New York's favorite restaurants. And the reason never today, nobody, not, never does anybody come up to me and say, you're my favorite restaurant because you make the best duck. In fact, even Shake Shack, where people wait in line for a long, long time to get a cheeseburger and a frozen custard, people love the burger there. They love the Shack burger. But when they tell me why it's their favorite restaurant, they're almost always talking about the 51% side, how they felt. They're almost never talking about how good it was. And the reason that I talk about before the internet and after the internet is that once we got the internet, as soon as someone says so-and-so makes the best fill-in-the-blank, I, you know, I took a picture of the clam pizza today and I emailed it immediately from my table because I thought it was so good. Okay, someone's busy making that clam pizza right now. And whenever I go out to eat, you restaurateurs, watch out because I'm going to take your ideas and I'm going to send them back and I'm going to have a really good chef work on it. And you should do the same thing when you come to my restaurants. But the point is, is we can no longer distinguish ourselves by being the best at what we do. I call that the air conditioner theory. Now, again, in the old days, growing up in St. Louis, really, really hot summers, 90 degrees at 5 in the morning, 98% humidity, not pleasant. And the way businesses would distinguish themselves, you know, there would be two hardware stores within two minutes of each other. And one of them had a picture of a polar bear and an igloo in the window that said, Burr, come in, it's cold. And the other one didn't have that poster. So one of them wanted our business because they could actually make you not sweat when you're buying 
your hammer and nails and screwdrivers. Another one, you would have to sweat in order to buy the light bulbs and all the stuff. Which one are you going to go to? Okay, but I call it the air conditioner theory because today everyone has air conditioning. And right now, you do not distinguish yourself as being someone's favorite because you do what you're supposed to do. You only lose their business if you don't do it. So I guarantee you that if somebody comes to one of our restaurants in July in New York this summer, and the air conditioner is broken, and invariably it will break at one of our restaurants in July. It's not fun. But I guarantee you that 80% of the people who go there are going to say, we do not need to come back to this place. That was not fun. But I can also guarantee you that all the people who dine in all the other restaurants on the days when the air conditioner works, no one's going to say, gee, honey, let's come back to the modern. They have the most delicious air conditioning. It's not going to happen. So where are we? We are at a point right now where there is so much good quality out there in terms of performance that just doing what you're supposed to do is only going to get you to the 49-yard line. And if you don't do what you're supposed to do, if I don't get the right food to the right person at the right table at the right temperature at the right time, you're just not going to come back. So what it leaves us with has nothing to do with service. Service is a way to describe the technical delivery of the product. Did we do what we said we're going to do? Anytime someone does what they're supposed to do, that is service. So when you, from now on, please, when you tell someone that place has really good service, just know that what you really mean by that is that they did what they were supposed to do. Okay, so you call Hertz to rent a convertible for your next trip to the Napa Valley because you want to be like those guys in Sideways, okay? Okay, or Santa Barbara, wherever those guys were, okay? And you get to Hertz, and lo and behold, the car is ready. It's a convertible. Your paper's ready. They don't make you wait in line. The car doesn't smell like smoke, okay? That's good service. They did what they're supposed to do. Okay, or you could go to another car company and get there and you could find that there's no convertible waiting and the answer you get is, well, we told you we don't guarantee convertibles. That's bad service. They didn't do what they're supposed to do. Okay, but your Hertz should not become your favorite place because they did what they're supposed to do. That's not enough. So it leaves us with this 51% category called hospitality. And hospitality has nothing to do with did you technically deliver what you're supposed to do. It's did you make the recipient of your service feel like you were on their side or not. And it's very, very simple. When you are the receiver of a hospitality experience, you feel like the other person is on your side. When you don't feel like they're on your side, there's no hospitality. We can reduce this to two prepositions, for and to. If you feel like the person did something for you, there's hospitality. If you feel like someone did something to you, there's no hospitality. Take it a step further, because we've given this so much thought. Service, which again, has to happen. If you don't get the 49 points, you're, you're out of the running. But 49 is not enough. But service is a monologue. Most companies that are really, really good at service decide what that service is going to look like. As a matter of fact, we do it differently at every single one of our restaurants. 
If you go to Union Square Cafe, there's a service manual that can itemize steps one through 20 that are supposed to happen consistently when you come to our restaurant. And it's, it's very, very um, precise things like, what is the standard for how many seconds it should be before you get greeted at the front door? What is the standard for within how many minutes of your table reservation, your table is actually ready? What is the standard for how long after you're seated is your drink order taken or the black olives delivered or your menus presented? And every single, what is the standard for how long after you've placed your order does your appetizer come? And, and the standard for when your appetizer is removed for when the main course comes. All of those, and, and by the way, that's just Union Square Cafe. It would be completely different. Let's go to our barbecue restaurant, Blue Smoke. At Blue Smoke, the service manual says that the hostess or host should actually take you to the table with the menus in hand and give you the menus as you sit down. Now, if we did that at our restaurant, the Museum of Modern Art, the Modern, you would think, what is this place, a diner? You're actually seating me with the menus in your hand? Completely different. So every company should have a service manual. It's like a recipe. If you follow these steps, you should always come, come out with the same outcome. Hospitality, on the other hand, has to be a dialogue. And I'll explain why. If the recipient of hospitality feels like you're on their side. What we need to recognize is that every human being in the world is different. And it takes something different. It takes a different set of emotional skills to understand if what I'm presenting is going to make you feel good or not. So service is almost like pret-a-porter, off the rack. And hospitality is like haute couture, which is it's, it's made just for you. And the reason that these things are so completely different and take such completely different skill sets is that the dialogue, the human dialogue, has to be completely different. Here's a, here's a quick example. I was um, meeting somebody a couple years ago in Chicago, Frenchman, and uh, he had read my book, Setting the Table, and he said, I have a bone to pick with you. I will not do the accent, sorry. <laughs> I'd be bad at that. And that's always a great, there's two ways I just love starting dialogues. One is I have a bone to pick with you, and the second is I need to bend your ear. Those are both really fun ways to get into a conversation. Um, but he, he had a bone to pick with me. And he said, I think hospitality is completely an American invention, and I do not believe it has any cultural connection to what I grew up with in France. And I said, really? Say more about that. And, and he, he said, oh, well, I, I just think that you Americans like too much hospitality, and I think it's stifling. I hate it. And so I, I, I said, well, can you give me an example? And he said, of course I can. Last night I was in a restaurant here in Chicago, and he said the entire time, the sommelier, I was dining by myself, and the sommelier would not leave me alone. He just, every time I took a sip of my wine, he was there to pour another sip, and every time I looked up, he asked me if I liked it, and I just wanted this guy to go away. I said, so you think that was too much hospitality? And he said, yeah. And, and I said, did you feel like he was on your side? And he said, on my side, I wanted to kill him. I said, if you didn't feel like he was on your side, that was not too much hospitality. That was no hospitality. That was too much service. Because the sommelier 
was acting as if one size fits all. And in a dialogue, one size has to fit one. And so I guarantee you at that time that that sommelier was also disappointing someone else in the restaurant who wanted more attention and wasn't getting it. And so once you understand this huge, huge gulf between service, which is always doing it the same way because you're going to come up with a consistent result, which has to do with performance. You know, the, the pecan pie better taste the same every single night, okay? But hospitality, which is the art of the experience you're providing so that someone feels like you're on their side, can only be done one way for one person. And that implies that in my line of business, and I would argue in any line of business that has employees and customers and communities and suppliers and investors, all the basic stakeholders that, that exist in the world of organizations, that the way you make someone feel is really the defining factor between whether you're going to come back for more or not. And the implication is that you've got to hire people on your team who actually have the emotional skills to make that work. Because robots can do 1 through 15, but only human beings with a certain set of emotional skills can do this dialogue of hospitality. And we've learned to actually name that, that skill set, and we call it having a hospitality quotient, or an HQ. And we found that the people who have a high HQ tend to be the kind of people who are personally at their happiest when they're delivering pleasure to others. Not in and of itself a good thing, and it's not a bad thing if you don't have it, but when you find people on your team who have a high HQ, and I would argue this is probably the case with professors as well. It's probably the case with doctors. How many, how many of us have ever had a doctor who had every degree on the wall and knew everything scientifically and couldn't make us feel good? We call that a bedside manner or an absence of a bedside manner. But we find this in just about every profession in the world. And so we try to find people who have what we call the six core emotional skills that together make up the, the high HQ. And those are people who are optimistically kind, who are curious about learning more, who have an extraordinary work ethic, who have a high degree of empathy, who are incredibly self-aware, and who have a very high degree of integrity. And we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what those things mean. We don't know how to teach anyone who isn't at a high level in those emotional skills how to be at a high level. But we've absolutely learned how to identify those emotional skills in someone before we hire them. And the end result, and by the way, we are human beings beautifully designed to make mistakes. So we don't always hire people with the highest HQ in the world. Because keep in mind, we're also, we're also lowering the subset of people we'll hire because we also have to hire the best grill cook, pasta maker, baker, maitre d', sommelier. And in addition to the fact that that's already a tiny subset of the population, we're now narrowing that even further by saying, and of the best grill cook, pasta cook, poissonnier, pastry chef, we're only going to hire the one with a high HQ. It can get pretty dicey in terms of hiring people because now our, our subset is, is down to a tiny population. But when we do our job really well, that is why, at the end of the day, when you come to one of our restaurants, 
I would take our batting average, certainly not perfect, but I would take our batting average and stack it up against almost anyone else's batting average every single day in terms of feeling like not only are you going to really enjoy the food and the drink that you're having, but you're going to feel like the people who are serving it to you, the, and you, you may not know this, but the people who are cooking it as well were doing this with a deep sense of caring that you were happy. And the best way to test us out, actually, is when we make a mistake, which happens all the time. We are expert mistake makers. Because people with a high HQ tend to be the people who can actually turn a mistake into a better experience than if the mistake had never been made in the first place. And we have a deep belief that the road to success is paved with mistakes well handled. Now, let me, let me try to summarize this, and then we're going to um, I'm really interested in hearing some of your questions as well. Now we've identified what our game is. We want to get 100 on our test. We've got to have killer food and wine. And the only way you get that, by the way, is to care deeply about where that stuff came from. We can talk about that later if you want to. And to have it cooked and prepared and served by people who are on your side, who really want you to be happy. And we've got to hire people who have those emotional skills. But the next thing that was my responsibility, and this is kind of the last real point I want to make, is that I have to tell the people who we hire who gets the hospitality and in what order. You heard me say a couple minutes ago that just like all of you, we have the exact same five stakeholders. And part of my job, actually, that I remember being a kid growing up in St. Louis. After school, we'd always play baseball across the street or street hockey or um, touch football. And I was one of the guys, and some of you may relate to this, who always wanted to be a captain. And the things that I liked about being a captain back then are the exact same two things I like about being a business operator today. You got to pick your team. And I always thought I picked better teams than the other guy. And the other thing you got to do was you got to argue over the rules with the other captain. So for example, if you're playing touch football, I was the chief guy on my team who would argue, is it, is it two hands above the waist or below the waist? Do you have to count to five Mississippi before you rush the passer? Um, all those kind of things. We didn't change the basic rules of football, but we got to argue around the edges. Well, guess what? I get to pick our team, and I don't get to change the main rules of the restaurant business. It's still you know, what it's been forever. You give me money, I give you food. That's the restaurant business in a nutshell. Um, but I do get to argue around the edges. And the arguing that I do around the edges is I get to decide in what order are we going to prioritize our stakeholders in terms of who gets the hospitality. And what I learned, I didn't set out consciously to do this, but when I wrote Setting the Table, it almost forced me retroactively to, to look at ourselves in the mirror and find out what's working and why and what are we doing. And what I learned kind of surprised me. At that point, we had already won uh, three James Beard Awards for Outstanding Service in America, one for Union Square Cafe, one for Gramercy Tavern, one for 11 Madison Park. So I knew people thought highly of our service. What I didn't know is that we put our customers second. And the funny thing is that I learned we were doing, we had created something, something that I now call the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality. And the virtuous cycle, obviously, is the opposite of a vicious cycle. Instead of one bad thing leading to something even worse, it's when one good thing keeps leading to something even better.
And what I learned was that we were actually putting our staff in front of our customers. So no more of, you know, the customer's always right. No more of this, you know, customer's king stuff. We learned that if we really wanted to have great customer satisfaction and a great guest experience, and you believe in a virtuous cycle where one good thing leads to something better, you would never put them first. You would always put them second. You would want to make sure that the people who are coming to work love their jobs and love working with each other so much that they are naturally going to do a much better job of taking care of our guests. And I'll tell you, to this day, a far more important metric to me than how happy our guests are, which obviously matters to me, but is if I were to do a poll of our staff members and I look at retention rates, and if I were to ask any of them, would you recommend working here to someone who you like? And if those numbers start to go down, I can almost guarantee you that correspondingly, the quality of the guest experience is going to be going down even worse. Because if you don't like working here, and you wouldn't recommend working here to a friend, how in the world can you fake being happy to the people who eat here? And conversely, if they would recommend it to a friend, and they love working with each other at whatever it is they do, I almost don't even need to worry about our guests. So what we learned in terms of our stakeholders, we put our, ourselves first. And the highest priority you have if you work for us is the degree of hospitality you extend to the people you work with. You're responsible for doing things for the people you work with. Second are our guests, and we will go to almost any length to do great things for our guests. Um, I say almost because uh, not at the expense of, of any, um, any lack of respect towards someone who works for us or another guest. And then the third stakeholder in our virtuous cycle is the communities in which we work. So it is your responsibility, if you work for us, to be on the side of your community. We are big believers in the old cliche that a rising tide lifts all boats, and we believe that the community is the tide. And it's your responsibility, no matter where you work, to find a way to invest in your community so that your restaurant comes up with it. It could be a park. It could be fighting hunger. It could be doing an AIDS walk. We don't tell our staff members what to do. Some of the best ideas come from them. Once a week, uh, each one of our restaurants rotates through uh, a service to Beth Israel Hospice. So every single week on Wednesday night, one of our restaurants is cooking, bringing, and serving food to the hospice unit at Beth Israel, which basically is about the last good meal someone's going to have in their life. And it may be the last time that their family members who are watching them will ever see them smile. And if you don't think that, that the experience of looking at death takes an hour and a half out of someone's life to do this, empowers you to come back and understand when you're working in the restaurant what the power of hospitality is, then nothing does. I didn't come up with that idea, though. That's the kind of idea that gets generated from our team. And the fourth stakeholder that we take care of are our suppliers, okay, the people who sell us our food, who grow our food, who make our wine. And the fifth stakeholder are our investors. Now, that was the biggest surprise when I looked at what we were doing. And it's not because I don't want to make money. It's quite to the contrary. It's if you believe in a virtuous cycle and you want to make the most money, one good thing keeps leading to something even better. You would never do what I learned about business growing up 
way back when, why are you in business? To make money. And then the next generation of enlightened people said, why are you in business? For customer satisfaction. Well, it was a shock then to find out that we put our investors fifth and our customers second. But it's precisely because we want to have great customer service and make a lot of money that we do it in that order. And it's not a linear list, one through five. It's a cycle. So in fact, why is it that the investors now, if they're happiest, how does that take care of us? How does that take care of our staff? Because when we ask our staff members, what does it take to make you love your job? The, the things we hear consistently are, give me a great team of people to work with that I can learn from and respect. Give me the opportunity to grow professionally, financially, personally. And be fair. Don't do for someone else what you wouldn't do for me. When we have happy investors, what it gives us the chance to do every handful of years is to open a new restaurant. And every time we open a new restaurant, to the degree that we can promote from within, and we do that almost exclusively right now, what it means is that not only do all those people get to grow into new jobs, someone who was a sous chef yesterday is a chef today, someone who was a sous pastry chef is now a pastry chef, Someone who is the assistant wine director now gets to be the wine director. Someone who is a host now gets to be a maitre d'. Not only do those people get to advance, but the people below them in their existing jobs get to advance. And it's all because we did a great job of taking care of the investors. Now, if you break this enlightened hospitality cycle at any point, you've broken the whole thing. And we've learned that by making mistakes through the years as well. So that, that's essentially what we've learned. And the final thing I'm going to share before taking your questions is this. In fact, I wrote this uh, on the second page of the introduction to setting the table. But I believe so strongly in the power of hospitality, which has nothing to do with service. Uh, my grandfather, um, who not only went to Yale, but uh, got an honorary doctorate here, who would be very proud if he were here right now, also began a school here um, called the Harris School for Childhood Studies. And he was a big believer. He taught us in our family that nothing will ever impact us the way anything that happens from zero to three will impact us. Nothing. And in fact, he believed that the earlier the experience in someone's life, the more you retain it. So I'm thinking about the first three minutes, three or four minutes after we were all born, I believe we got the first and most impactful and most memorable hospitality experience of our lives. And one that I think we'll take with us to every transaction, whether you're buying a Metro card or buying a Grande at Starbucks um, or whatever, whatever it is you're coming to one of my restaurants. But I think we got four gifts that we spend the rest of our lives in search of. We got eye contact, a smile, a hug, and some pretty good food. <laughs> and I truly, truly believe that we spend the rest of our lives with that firmly implanted in our brains, in our hearts, wanting to know that we are seen. That's what the eye contact was in any transaction, wanting to know that the other person is happy to see us. That's the smile. 
wanting to know that the pleasure of exchange is mutual. That's the hug. You can't get one without giving one. You can't give one without getting one. And finally, we want the goods. It better be good. Now, in that model, that first hospitality transaction, the, the performance, which was the food, is 25%. I'm making it 49% just because we have all these restaurant critics out there to tell you how important the food is. But I believe in this so much that, that I'm building an entire business model on an appreciation that as much noise as there is out there about the celebrity chef and the celebrity this and that, that at the end of the day, having great food is not a license to not do the 51%. And as a matter of fact, the 51% does a great job of overcoming the many, many mistakes we make when a cook accidentally puts too much salt in the risotto or undercooks the pork chop or whatever it happens to be. So with that, I want to thank you for having me. And I really welcome your questions. Thank you so much. You mentioned, or uh, the professor mentioned in the beginning that you're expanding, uh, I guess you've been expanding more rapidly over the last few years. And as you've said over the last hour, hospitality is such a huge part of why your business model works. And I know historically as restaurants expand and become more chain-like, that service is more standardized. And there's the risk of that service, you know, the, the risk that it becomes more service and less hospitality. So I'm wondering, how do you look at your expansion strategy and maintain that competitive advantage of hospitality? All right, that, well, that's a, that's a many million dollar question you just asked right there. And I, I would say that we're very, it, it begins by being aware of it. It begins by being aware that um, we don't want to have a, uh, a dumb group of restaurants just because we have a smart organization. We want to always have smart restaurants. We always want our restaurants to be more famous in and of themselves than our organization. So for example, we didn't have restaurant groups, fine dining restaurant groups 20 years ago. That's a modern invention. As I said earlier, it was if you wanted to be taken seriously as a restaurant, you had one. If you had more than one, you were a chain. So your very question is based in the history of our industry. It was really one or the other. And as restaurant groups came to be, you started to see conventions. One of the conventions was something called cross-marketing. And you would walk into a restaurant group, and at the front of the maitre d' stand would be the business card of every restaurant in that group. Have you all seen that before? For example, we've made the choice not to do that. Because when you come to Union Square Cafe, we want you to come to Union Square Cafe. If you happen one day to, to say, boy, I love Union Square Cafe, and I love Gramercy Tavern, and I love Mylino, and then you figure out that they are cousins, that's great, but we really we really run each restaurant as a handcrafted, one-of-a-kind place. Now, as we grow something like Shake Shack, where there's more than one of the same thing, um, there are things that need to be done consistently well, and there are things that should feel handcrafted for that site. So one of the things, one of the ways we do it to build upon our culture is that the leadership of, of every Shake Shack is responsible we don't do this in a top-down way. They have to do it in a bottom-up way for telling us which 
local uh, cause they want to affiliate themselves with in their community. And so like, and, and basically they then name one of their frozen custard uh, concretes after their community and the proceeds from that one concrete um, goes to that cause. So for example, the Upper West Side of New York partnered with the Museum of Natural History. That's an obvious one. And they came up with the Crunchstellation. Bad pun. Um, and uh, the one in Miami picked um, an orphanage. Uh, on the Upper East Side, uh, on 86th Street, they partnered with an organization uh, that wants to plant a million trees in New York. I, and the one in the theater district partnered with um, Equity Fights AIDS. So they each do that. And what it does is that just something seemingly simple like that roots them not only to their community, even though it's a chain, but also connects them to the importance of community in our culture. And uh, I'll tell you what, the minute that we lose that soul, I don't really need to be connected to this company anymore because it's just, that's not why I do it. You, you had said before that it was really difficult in such a small subset to find porters and waiters who, who exhibit all those qualities. I imagine it must be even harder to find general managers um, who you can trust and who can run the business the way you want it to be run. I'm wondering how you, how you go about finding them and how you keep track of so many restaurants in so many different cities without physically being there. Um, I'm going to answer your, I'm going to answer your second question first. Um, until we opened Shake Shack in Miami last summer, a hundred percent of the restaurants that we own are within a five to 20 minute walk of my apartment. Okay. One of them is even a six second walk from my apartment when the cars aren't coming down the street too quickly. Um, and so keeping track of them, we've never opened a, a tablecloth restaurant, i.e. one with reservationists and maitre d's and a florist outside of New York City. We've turned down those opportunities year after year after year because I think that there's a certain handcrafted quality to real hospitality. You want to know who's eating in your restaurant and they want to know who's home. They don't want to feel like they're eating in a corporation. They want to know their general manager. They want to know the chef. Um, so that's the answer to your second question. We're not, now the reason I think we can open Shake Shack is that it's a systems driven business. There will be today probably uh, 25,000 people will eat at a Shake Shack. It would be even more if the Mets were in town right now at City Field. Um, in New York. That's a lot of people. I have no idea who any of them is and they don't care. And so we're okay. Shake Shack doesn't have a chef, pastry chef, maitre d', dining room director, paste, um, florist, linen company. It's, it's a systems driven business. Now your next, your first question was how do you get these general managers? You first have to say to yourself that the general manager and the chef are as critical to the outcome as the original document you put into a Xerox machine is to the outcome. You're not going to get anything clearer than the original document you put in. And so you got to find people who are 
not only as good as it gets at what they do, but as good as we need at how they make people feel. Because they are sending, in a culture-driven business, they're sending a message to everybody that this is what they really mean. Forget the words that we heard in orientation and that we heard you know, in our meeting with Danny four weeks after we joined. Forget those words. This is what they really mean. And so you're right. The quality of the human being, as well as the quality of, of the technician, is hugely important. One of the benefits we now have after all these years is that we can promote from within. And so that sends an incredibly powerful message. The brand new general manager at Union Square Cafe um, has been in our company now for seven years, following going to Cornell. But before that, he was at Mylino as assistant general manager. Before that, he was 11 Madison Park as assistant general manager. And before that, he opened our cafes at the Museum of Modern Art. So he knows us, we know him, and he has a track record. And when he got promoted, everyone at Mylino started crying because they were going to lose him. And everyone at Union Square Cafe started cheering because they were going to get him. That's perfect. The general manager at Mylino had been the general manager at Tabla before that, and had been our lead captain at Gramercy Tavern before that. Same kind of deal. We promote from within. And, and then culture, which is so impossible to teach, but is very, very likely to catch. You catch a culture. You teach technique. And what we've learned is that, um, that because we have enough of a groundswell of restaurants now, we're always looking at the number twos and threes, both in the kitchen and in the dining room, to see who's ready to be the next flag waver. Why is it that here in America we don't see service as a craft rather than, than a way to actually present the food to the customer? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I think I can answer very simply and very quickly. We have... Uh, an enormous number of culinary schools in this country, and we have almost no service schools. Um, service is um, something, and right now we're talking about the technical aspects of service, and it's a crapshoot. If, if, if you get someone who's bad at service, it's a crapshoot as to whether they have a high HQ or not. But service has been viewed in this country uh, with a cultural left, and that is, is it service or servitude? And in this country, um, because we don't have a long-standing history of restaurants that goes back centuries the way you might find in Western Europe, being a waiter and getting tipped, uh, which is our culture, has created a situation where um, nobody with a brain on their shoulder and a heart right here would say, what I really want to do is to be a servant in exchange for the whims of kissing up to a guest. And that's the history of our country, whereas it was deemed to be somewhat legitimate to become a chef, and uh, it, it's even become deemed to be very, very legitimate to become a sommelier. Now, increasingly, and I'll, I'll tell you that uh, something that I feel very strongly about and have ever since my first restaurant, when I was 27 and I opened Union Square Cafe, 
at least half the people who worked for me were older than I was. And, and I'm talking about waiters. And I had very little to no experience as a manager at that point. And I looked up to the waiters in our restaurant. They were teaching me about the business. And I always went to work believing that if I made them feel great about coming into work, they would do a good job. And that's when I actually came up with something important to me that later I read about, that somebody's written a great book about called Servant Leadership, that everyone knew I was the boss, but it's basically an inverted hierarchy where the buck still stops with me, but when I come to work, my primary job is to take care of the people who I need to take care of our guests. Because that is not the case prevalently in my industry, I mean everywhere in this country, and because people don't want to be servants, but they do want to be chefs, we have schools for chefs, but we don't have schools for servers. And I think until we get rid of the notion that the act of providing service and hospitality is in some way an act of servitude, which it's not, we're going to be stuck with that. Finally, what I want to say is that I think increasingly Americans who are sophisticated about going out to eat don't need to or want to feel superior to the person serving them. They actually prefer a situation when they can have an incredibly intelligent uh, conversation, human being to human being, with someone who actually just knows a little more about the wine and the food at this restaurant, but is perfectly able to talk about theater, books, art, life. I think it's going to take us a while to move into that, and especially because of the prevalence of big national chains in this country that you don't see as much of in Western Europe. Um, I mean, in terms, we don't have casual restaurants like. Applebee's and Fridays um, and Red Lobster and International House of Pancakes in Lyon or in, you know, in Bordeaux. There might be some McDonald's here and there, but we'll see. I, I think it's going to get better. Um, I'd like to ask you to put on your culinary hat for a moment and share with us who some of your culinary heroes are and also when it's your birthday, what's your favorite meal to eat? It's so funny. I have culinary heroes all over the place. It could be a pitmaster in South Carolina that does one thing every day for 40 years and finds a way to do it a little better, or someone who makes brisket in Taylor, Texas, a guy named Wenzel Mars, who's been making brisket since D-Day and slicing it every day so he can't move his fingers from this position because that's all they do and he's bent. He can't move his body or his fingers. That guy's a hero of mine. Um, I would say that uh, somebody who makes a, a perfect bowl of spaghetti alla carbonara or cacio e pepe in Rome, who's been doing the same thing over and over. I find that I like uh, winemakers. I, I find that it, it's people who, rather than trying to invent something new, were the craftsmen who said, this is what I do, and I'm going to find a way to do this thing better than it's ever been done before. We were talking earlier today about uh, pizza, because we went out to have pizza here. Uh, and uh, there's a guy in, um, in Phoenix by the name of Chris Bianco, who 
was originally a New York boy, and he moved out to Phoenix to make the world's best pizza. And by gosh, I think he's just about done it. Um, I would still come to New Haven every chance I could for pizza. But here's a guy who only makes pizza, only sells pizza when he's the guy making it. And he's run, he's run into a problem because he believed in this so much and he got so busy that after years of breathing in flour, he's got an asthma problem and he can no longer be the purest. He has to now teach someone else, which is actually a good thing because someone needs to learn from him. But long answer, I just have so much respect for someone who goes, that I could never do, that goes deeply into one topic and is the best in the world at that one thing. Thank you all very, very much. This lecture was delivered on April 18, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center. The Frankie Lectures at Yale are made possible through the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie. The Spring 2011 series studies the history of food and culinary styles from prehistory to the present with a particular focus on Europe and the United States. This year's lectures were organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar taught by Paul Friedman, Chester D. Tripp Professor of History. This lecture was delivered on April 18, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.